Are we looking at the same target? You're spitting dust. And don't worry, we can always use Corman for the guys who can't shoot. got your off-eye shut? Well, if I close my off-eye, then I can't see what's out there. There's nothing out there but the target. Well, negative, sir. There's something out there. Punch it. I'm better when it's breathing. Every generation gets its war movies. All Quiet on the Western Front, Platoon, Saving Private Ryan. But what about the 9-11 generation? It's an era many Americans might want to forget, but we've been making movies about it almost nonstop since the global war on terror began. This is Schlock and Awe. I'm Evan Hill. And I'm Jack Crosby. We're two journalists who grew up in the post-9-11 era, and we've spent most of our careers covering the effects of those attacks and the wars the U.S. began after them. In Schlock and Awe, we're going to try to unravel the cinematic universe of the global war on terror in an attempt to answer the question, what's our generation's defining war movie? This is episode one, and we're going to tackle a big one. American Sniper, Clint Eastwood's biopic of Chris Kyle, the unreliable narrator of one of the Iraq war's greatest legends. Aim small, miss small. Do it for bagels. go down. Mission accomplished. So American Sniper is the story of Chris Kyle, who's a Navy SEAL who signs up after 9-11 and gets deployed to the Iraq War. The story is basically Chris Kyle's narrative from bronco-busting, youthful, hard-drinking, sexy cowboy to hardcore, beefy, Navy SEAL sniper who confronts the forces of evil over the course of his four tours in Iraq before leaving to come home to his long-suffering wife and eventually being killed off-screen by a troubled military veteran. Right. So so this is based on Chris Kyle's autobiography, um, which was also called American Sniper. The, The book and the movie themselves both kind of build up this like iconic American hero, this guy that is like this legend, like he's referred to in the movie and the books as the legend. He is the quintessential American war hero. He is a sniper. And uh, the the legend that gets built up around him is he has more confirmed kills than any other U.S. sniper in, in the war on terror, essentially. American Sniper comes out Christmas Day, 2014. It's obviously a Clint Eastwood film starring uh, Bradley Cooper and Sienna Miller. It ends up being nominated for several Oscars, including Best Picture uh, and Best Actor. It loses all of them, loses to Birdman for Best Picture. Best Actor loses to uh, 
<laughs> Eddie Redmayne playing Stephen Hawking. But but the the takeaway from from American Sniper is that American war movies uh, traditionally have not done very well at the box office. I think with the limited exception of uh, Zero Dark Thirty and uh, and Hurt Locker, and this is sort of the mold breaking American war movie. Americans don't want to watch movies about Iraq and Afghanistan, but this one breaks through. It's got Clint Eastwood. It's got Bradley Cooper. It breaks through. It makes, I think, $105 million. It makes more on its Friday release than any Clint Eastwood movie ever made uh, in its first opening weekend. So this is a a certifiable blockbuster American war film, which um, makes it good. This This is like Clint Eastwood, like turning the racism dial and like looking back at the audience. And he finally like he gets the racism dial like just right in this movie. <laughs> Clint Eastwood uh, nails the racism dial uh, in American Sniper by turning it to 11. And that turns out to be a, uh, a successful uh, recipe. I, I guess that's, that's the, that's the question about this movie is like, why, why did this break through when other arguably better and more interesting war movies did not? Um, I, I think, you know, it's, it's pretty clear why, a film like Zero Dark Thirty broke through because it was, you know, a, a, a interesting director making a, you know, technically uh, interesting and compelling film, even if the politics were terrible. It's it, which you could also say for The Hurt Locker, right? And I guess you know Eastwood at this point in 2013, like it, you'll you'll know more about this than me, but he's like he's like sort of considered like a prestige director now. He's like you know, but. You know, just going off of the the substance of this movie, like I, what was it about this that made Americans finally, you know, want to see it? Yeah, he, you know, he he does Unforgiven way back in the '90s, and that's like a classic western. But then, really, the breakthrough is Million Dollar Baby, two thousand four, followed by Flags of Our Fathers, Letters from Iwo Jima, Gran Torino, which we all remember. That's you know, Clint Eastwood really toying with the racism dial and seeing how successful he can be. Um, and then was it, is America, which is more racist, Gran Torino or American Sniper? I mean, your original question was, why did this movie do so good? And I think the, the connecting line between Gran Torino and, and American Sniper is these are films that can make you feel good for the way that you already feel about the thing that happened. So Gran Torino, angry old man tells the kids to get off his lawn. He's racist, but eventually he does the right thing in sort of a patronizing, protective way toward the immigrant family. American Sniper is a movie that makes Americans feel good about what we did in Iraq. You know, someone wrote, one of the reviewers that I read for this wrote that it was a Western. And I think it is a Western. But the reason why it fails is that, you know, when you're trying to transpose the Western genre to something that's happening now, uh, where everyone has access to reams of facts about the awful things that America did in Iraq doesn't work. Um, so I guess I don't, I didn't, I didn't think Western and maybe it's just cause I haven't, I haven't really like watched as many Westerns to me. I, I to me, it felt like it didn't really know what this movie was. My, my like final thought in the, in the, in the ending combat scene, I guess, you know, this like climactic battle, where they're on the roof and they're getting kind of swarmed by insurgents or something like that. It it felt like, like if you took a Michael Bay movie and then just like took all of the fun out of it, it felt like, like boring Michael Bay, basically like politics are the same. 
take Michael Bay and you're like, okay, you have to make a technically good movie, but you're allowed to keep all of your politics, but none of your fun. Right. Like that's is, just kind of what it felt like. Right, right, right. This is not a fun movie, but I think what, what you just said made me realize that this is American Sniper is prestige for people who uh, want to believe in the American mission in Iraq. Prestige television or prestige movies usually appeal to um, a class of reviewers and viewers who tend to be liberal-leaning and coastal. And um, Clint Eastwood is, is prestige for people who are mostly not like that. And so I, my in my imagination, people have flocked to this movie because it was a prestige version of the America that they wanted to believe in. But to the point, to the question of whether it's a Western, I agree with you. I don't exactly see it that way. But there are some things that actually, when I think about it again, it's like, that the sandstorm scene is literally like this outpost being swarmed by Indians. Not to mention the fact that Chris Kyle himself in his autobiography and in the movie consistently refers to not only his enemies, but Iraqis themselves as savages. Um, yeah. It doesn't even try to humanize Iraqis. There's no scene in this movie where you're, you're able to like think that like, oh, maybe the Iraqis are people as well. I thought that we were going to get a token scene like that when they're um, it's about, I think three quarters of the way through the movie and they're on a stakeout trying to get the butcher or whatever. And they're in some guy's house and he invites them in for dinner. And I thought, Oh, now we're going to get our token scene where you realize that many of these people are just caught in a bad situation. Right. And then no, that scene devolves because Bradley Cooper's realizes that the guy's like elbows are bruised, I think, which maybe he thought, like, I thought that was, I didn't really understand, like, the bruised elbow thing, maybe from, like, lying down in, like, a shooting position or something. And then he goes and he, like, digs up the guy's bedroom and finds a shitload of weapons under his bed. Right. So we don't we don't even get that in this movie. We don't even get that, like, no. token um, thing. And the only times that, like, the humanity of the Iraqis is even portrayed are the scenes where, like, Bradley Cooper has to shoot a kid or decide not to shoot a kid. But even then, it's like the only reason that there's dramatic tension in these scenes is that you're afraid that Bradley Cooper is going to feel bad after he shoots the kid. Like, right. you're not afraid that the kid's going to die. You're just right. like, oh, man, like, hope he doesn't have to do it. Right. No, there's no there's not a single Iraqi in this film who is portrayed with like an ounce of humanity. I mean, that scene that you were talking about is the perfect example. It's like you you think you're finally going to get one guy who is a human uh, and he like they're in his apartment. He lets them in and he offers them dinner for Eid al-Adha. And then he turns his, his like display of, of humanity is, uh, is a ruse is, is a, is a lie, you know, to prevent the Americans from suspecting the truth, which is that he's like an insurgent and the, the raw elbows are the giveaway, which is such a funny detail. Like you were saying, it's like, Clint Eastwood gives this guy's raw elbows as the evidence that, you know, Kyle needs to assume that he's an insurgent, which is such a specific detail for a scene that's totally invented. Like nothing in that scene is real. It's not even in Chris Kyle's autobiography, which itself um, yeah. plays with the facts quite a lot, which is something I wanted to get to, which is that everything in this movie, or I should say almost everything in this movie uh, is fake the scene that you were just describing with the Iraqi father didn't happen the reason why Chris Kyle joins the military in the, in the movie he sees the embassy bombings in Africa 
uh, and he gets pissed off and says, you know, we can't let them do it, do this to us. Didn't happen. Uh, he was always going to join the military after going to school. The first scene where you're wondering if he's going to shoot the kid and he has to shoot the kid because the kid has a grenade didn't happen. There was no kid. Uh, apparently there was a woman with a grenade. Yeah. His, uh, his first like credited kill was, was a woman with a grenade. Right. And then they just, for some reason they thought that the beginning of this movie would be more compelling if he shot a child as well. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's better. Let's have him kill a kid. Um, which, you know, everything revolves around, as you said, whether or not Chris Kyle is going to feel sad about the person he kills, which brought to mind the famous quote from the Scottish comedian, Frankie Boyle about, um, American foreign policy and how the worst thing about American foreign policy is not only will America come to your country and kill all your people, but they'll come back 20 years later and make a movie about how killing all your people made their soldiers <laughs> feel sad. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that is, that is exactly this movie. Like this movie is exactly that joke, which was something I was struck by in the end. I, I, I one of my last notes when I was watching this is like, what is this movie? What is the point of this movie the whole end of the movie is like him grappling slowly with like okay i actually need to like i'm ready to be done i'm ready to be done with war um and then when he comes home we don't really get like any kind of resolution to that like it's shown that like okay he's finally working with the veterans at the va now and that kind of gives him his life back and then the ending of it of course is that like he's murdered by a unhinged veteran with severe ptsd um, which they don't show in the film they just show him leaving and then the film leaving on the trip in which he was murdered and then the film abruptly ends. And so I guess I, I was just left with like, wh like what is the point that this movie is? Because there's no character development. Kyle doesn't change as a character. Like there's a line um, where, uh, where his wife uh, tells him like, stop trying to pretend that this war hasn't changed you or something. Um, but it, it doesn't change him. Like Chris Kyle as a character, I don't think changes at all. There's no development or change in his character throughout the entire film. He goes from like a hyper aggressive dude, like obsessed with this like sheepdog mentality, which we also need to 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 talk about, to at the end of the film, like a hyper aggressive dude, like obsessed with the sheepdog mentality, but just like there's no emotional arc in this movie whatsoever. It's just completely flat. Yeah, and I think that like, you know, ironically that is a realistic portrayal of who Chris Kyle was by all accounts, a guy who never for a second appears to have doubted his mission in Iraq. I mean, this is a guy whose worldview was <clears throat> black and white. <clears throat> I mean, he writes in the autobiography about not seeing grays and he writes, uh, I hate the damn savages I've been fighting and I always will. I love killing bad guys. Even with the pain, I loved what I was doing. Maybe war isn't really fun, but I certainly was enjoying it. And like that attitude, like you said, does not change uh, over the course of the entire film. Not once does this guy grapple with or regret the things that he's done in Iraq. The one thing that he does sort of realize is that his marriage is going to end if he doesn't finally stop going back. You know, speaking of the sheepdog thing, one of his final sentences to his kids before he walks out the door on the day he's killed, which, you know, this entire scene is fictionalized. He turns to his son and he says something to the effect of like, you've got to protect our women. Yeah. Um, which is just like, okay, like nothing in this, like this guy is basically passing on the exact same thing that he heard from his father and nothing has changed. And again, I keep like something in the back of my head wants to be like, 
this is like Clint Eastwood being subversive. Like he's telling us that like all this bad stuff is being passed on from the father, but obviously that's not what Clint Eastwood is intending. Like any, any doubts that you have about this movie, maybe being slightly subversive are to me answered by the fact that it ends with this long montage of the Chris Kyle funeral, the real footage from the Chris Kyle funeral, which is if, if we were doing horseshoe theory jingoism with this movie, like we're like, it's we're like one stop away from this being starship troopers. Right. Like, it could it have been starship get, troopers. like a little, a little less subtle and a little more jingoistic. And it's, it's essentially starship troopers. Right. Even though like these days, like you see people online being like, I think someone was just replying to Elon Musk the other day that was like, you should read Heinlein. Like he's my favorite uh, sci-fi author. Like, <laughs> Not people that read the original Heinlein, which is just overtly fascist. Yeah. And we're like, damn, this shit rocks. Yeah, like, I, that, I'm so glad they made a movie out of this. Right. With, uh, that's with American Denise Sniper. Richards, man. Yeah, that's American Sniper. I mean, speaking of Frankie Boyle, I was looking back for what he said about that. I was looking for that quote that he said about American foreign policy. And I stumbled on a tweet from Frankie Boyle that says, watched American Sniper, sort of Star Wars from the point of view of the stormtroopers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That I mean, that's that's one hundred percent correct, and that's like we're we're skipping wildly around uh, in the plot here. But the thing that that immediately jumped out to me um, when watching this movie was at how little they tried to give any context to what was happening. The context to this movie is the average Americans, I think, like dimly remembered view of the late nineties and early two thousands because the main events in the movie, it goes from embassy bombings to him enlisting to uh, him and his, uh, I think they weren't married at the time, like watching nine 11 happen to them getting married. And then when they get married, like the, the, the seal guys are like, we just got the call. Like we're going, they don't say what they're going into. Right. He finished SEAL qualification training at Coronado in August 2001. So right before. So he was a brand new SEAL when September 11th happened. Mm. But he did. He didn't deploy to Afghanistan. Right. So like he never he never served in Afghanistan. So this like the and the movie just flattens every it makes absolutely no distinction. And in fact, tries to make there not be a distinction between the war in Afghanistan, which is never mentioned and Iraq. And and the movie is like specifically structured, like the bad guys that they're fighting Al Qaeda and Iraq. That's like what the movie sets up as like the antagonist, which is not, it's wild how all of that context is just completely stripped from the movie to where like Iraq is Afghanistan is any of these places that the other like sort of events that prompted him to enlist. Yeah. Happened it's all the same thing. I realized like something insane afterwards, which is that like, while I was watching this film, they show that nine 11 scene with like the towers falling and then, mm-hmm. and then the wedding, and then they get the call during the wedding, another totally fake event that never happened. And they're like, we're going to war. And in my head, I was like, I was like nodding along like, Oh yeah. Like nine 11. And then of course, yeah, he deploys to Iraq. And then only afterward did I stop and realize I was like, Oh, that's totally, it's so fucked up. That, I mean, you and I both have spent a decent amount of time reporting on uh, conflict. And, you know, I've reported from the Middle East. All this stuff should be in our memory banks. And yet, I'm watching this movie, and the towers fall on the TV that they're watching. And then he gets deployed to Iraq. And I'm just sitting there nodding along like an idiot. 
And then and then afterwards, I'm like, yeah. I wake up and I'm like, oh, wait. Yeah, that's total bullshit because the Iraq 9-11 connection is one of the most notorious uh, acts of like foreign policy perfidy committed by the Bush administration to connect the two. Um, and, the, and yet this movie, you know, Clint Eastwood is such a good director. And this movie just goes so seamlessly between the two that you're kind of just like, oh, yeah, mm-hmm, yeah, right. Like they're deploying to Iraq. Of course they're deploying to Iraq. And whenever you see a poll that's like, you know, however many percent of Americans believe that there was an Iraqi connection to 9-11, look no further than the highest grossing American post 9-11 war film, American Sniper. It's like, why do people believe in these things? Well, it's because it's everywhere in the culture. I mean, like you were saying, like the lack of context here, they're riding in the back. I think you were talking about that scene where like they're riding in the back of that transport going into I think it's supposed to be Fallujah and the guys like Al-Qaeda in Iraq is like flooding the borders uh, and there's a there's a price on all your heads. Yeah. Um, and that yeah, there's like foreign fighters from around the world are coming here to like take you out right. or something like that. right. That is the sole yeah. that is the sole context that is provided for the viewer to understand why Chris Kyle and his soldiers are about to go into Fallujah. Um, <laughs> also, also accompanied by a sentence that says everyone in this city has evacuated any military aged male as a target. Um, yeah. So it's like, which to be clear happened, happened like once that happened in what was either the, either the first or the second battle of Fallujah where the U S like basically leafleted the whole city and was like, we're sending in like first Marine division or, or whatever unit it was that they sent in. They were like, we're sending in First Marine Division in like three days. If you're not a combatant, get out. Otherwise, like we're going to try and kill all of you. Right. Right. Exactly. And that is go forward in this movie to, I think, one of the final battle scenes, which is the siege of Sadr City, Mm -hmm. which takes place a few years later. And that, you know, is the Mahdi army and Muqtada al-Sadr. And yet, exactly like you said, this is now linked in the viewer's mind with that very first scene which is all the civilians have been evacuated. Any military age male is, uh, is a target. But Sadr City is one of the most dense urban areas on Earth, had not been evacuated, but had been occupied by various armed forces, and they were erecting walls around it to prevent these fighters from going in and out. It is purely foreign fighters and Al-Qaeda in Iraq and Zarqawi um, who are coming to get you. Um, and th- and this is that's that's a deliberate choice in the movie. It's it's a it's a deliberate choice to basically treat all of the action that happens in the movie as a series of vignettes that basically tell the single like personal story of this one guy, this American hero, the American sniper. I guess in, in that case it, it sort of does feel a little bit more western like you know because you get like first tour second tour third tour fourth tour it was a very strange and deliberate decision to try and center the sort of emotional journey of one man of the emotion of the american sniper in the movie but then not have that character actually have any kind of like emotional arc Mm -hmm. in it as i was saying like he just goes from like i really really want to go to war i guess i mean yeah i guess the arc is i really really want to go to war to, I still want to go to war, but I guess I'll come home now. It makes sense that all the con, like the context is is stripped from that because that's what the movie is really about. And then it just kind of fails to say anything remotely like intelligent about that at all. One thing that this movie gets 
apparently accurate and I also thought was the best part of the film is Kyle's relationship with Taya, Um, which Mm -hmm. which seems realistic down to the sort of like mundane American style courtship ritual of like hitting on a woman at a bar at like what looks to be a TGI Fridays and helping her throw up outside when as, as you hold her hair. Um, yeah, like that all, I actually kind of liked it because it seemed, it like seemed very realistic. Everything and is apparently real true to, true to the life of their, uh, relationship. Everything else though is fake. Like this movie. So you mentioned Chris Kyle's embellishments, Chris Kyle's autobiography, uh, famously, or I should say infamously, um, he fictionalizes an account um, of punching Jesse Ventura at a bar because Jesse Ventura said something <laughs> said something like uh, the, yeah. the SEALs deserved to lose a few for what they did in Iraq. Didn't happen. Jesse Ventura successfully sues and gets a little over a million dollars um, from the Kyle estate. Um, then you have the Hurricane Katrina anecdote where Chris Kyle... Oh, God, yeah, um, that was... That's weird. Claim, Yeah, so Chris Kyle claims that he was on top of the Superdome with a fellow sniper and took out around 30 armed civilians who were participating in like the chaos and looting after hurricane Katrina. And then he has another anecdote about fighting off guys who tried to carjack him, which like no law enforcement source could ever uh, verify. So that's his own autobiography has these embellishments uh, and, and falsehoods in it. So Eastwood takes an autobiography that already is telling untruths and then is like probably more fiction than fact yeah. at this point. And then and then he like, just I, yeah. I mean he just it bends like all the the truth out of it. It also kind of bugged me and this is I'm I'm swinging wildly now cuz you were talking about his like magical like 2000 meter shot or something like that that none of the actual sniping in this movie makes any sense either. Like he's constantly like twiddling like adjusting like the knobs on his gun to like take a shot that's at the exact same like range and and like in the exact same conditions yes. as a shot that he takes like 10 seconds earlier yes like <laughs> he like the, in in the in the scene where he's like seeing mustafa they've got the camera down his gun scope and mustafa i would have to look up what the like actual glass that they're supposedly like using is or whatever mustafa's shooting something that's that's clearly a, a like some kind of svd druganov um has a russian scope on it and mustafa's i guess Bradley Cooper's reasonably close, like within like 300 or 400 meters of the guys working on the wall. Mustafa is like 2000 meters away from Bradley Cooper. And yet Mustafa's view is like him looking down the scope and he's like 200 meters away from the guys working on the wall. So like, it it doesn't make sense where any of them are. And then when you see Bradley Cooper's view, he's looking at Mustafa who does look to be like 2000 meters away. Can't even see him. He sees like a little bit of like a glint from like something from a position and shoots at it and then says tango down and you after an absolutely absurd slow motion like bullet cam shot that's like directly out of a video game which i think speaks back to the original point this is just like absolute bullshit catered towards making out the experience of a hero in the iraq war to be them doing like epic sniper shots and clearing houses like with the Marines and like knocking heads and, you know, like never really worrying about it. And yeah. it's there's like it just divorces itself from realism in basically every way that it possibly can. Right. That actually is perfect because I wanted to bring up operator mode and I wanted to get your take <laughs> on I wanted to get your take on operator mode because there are 
moments in this movie that keep popping up where the movie wants you to know that Chris Kyle uh, is about to go operator mode. Um, and it, it like fucking hits you over the head with like a gong every time it's about to happen. Like the, there's like a huge musical cue that's, it's almost like a metal gear, like very video game. As you said, like every moment where like they're about to go knock down doors or whatever, it's like, tell there, there might as well be like a, like a flashing, like heads up display. That's like, you're in operator mode now. There's that one scene where Kyle is getting so pissed that like he can't be on the ground knocking down doors with the Marines that he goes down to knock down the doors with them. And he like walks up and he's like, yo, I'm a seal. Let me teach you some things. Um, yeah. And then, and then the thing that he teaches them is that you knock on your helmet when you want the door breacher to come up. Um, yeah. And that's like, that's, that's like it. Like what else is he, <laughs> what is there any sign in this movie that he is like teaching these guys what it means. And like when he goes operator mode, is there any sense of like realism in this? So, I mean, I obviously have, have not ever served and, and the majority of time that I've spent with people who are in militaries and in active combat have not been the U S military, but <laughs> at least from what I know, no, like, again, this is just completely incoherent. First off, I mean, shit happens on operations but it does seem kind of insane to me like it would be an insane thing that like would get him hauled before his superiors which when when is it that that they leave and the guy says i understand if you guys don't want to go back in and kyle says we're going back in yeah that's i think they want to go back out and like have another crack at capturing the guy maybe or like there's some unclear objective that they haven't completed that he wants to like go back and do and then everyone's like hell yeah like let's let's go and do it i feel like this is also something that like basically every like iraq or afghanistan movie i've watched um including some like truly bad ones like the the outpost or whatever have done better than this movie is like actually somewhat coherently explained what the soldiers on screen are supposed to be doing at any given time, which American sniper does not like there's, there's very broad strokes. Like the final thing is like, they're trying to kill Mustafa, which again, didn't happen. Chris Kyle was never near Mustafa. Didn't kill him. He thinks he was killed by a different soldier at a different time. Um, right. But it, uh, other than that, like there's never any, like there's no context to this movie at all. There's no, there's no context. It doesn't even, which maybe is one of the reasons that this movie did so well, because it assumes that the people watching it don't have any knowledge of what actually happened in these wars and don't have any desire to know what happened in these wars other than our boys were over there trying to do good and the evildoers were trying to stop them. That's right. the only context do this it could be anywhere in the world it takes place in iraq even though i don't even think iraq is really even mentioned it's not really even mentioned what war they're fighting it's just like there's a war going on over there that's the one scene where he like he gives his little spiel right the, the like right you know he's talking to his wife as his wife goes into labor he's like sitting like might as well be recording like a front facing like selfie video in the cab of his truck, like ranting about how there's a war going on over there. And like, no one's ever talking about this. And his wife's like going into labor and she's like, honey, honey, it's happening. And he's still just like going on and on about <laughs> this. And then he like realizes like, that was just like 
<laughs> like she actually goes into labor and then he finally he's like what what what, what what's wrong honey and she's like i've like for the past like 15 seconds i've been like ooh, ooh ow my stomach um yeah exactly yeah it's it's a movie made for people who who have zero curiosity as to the truth but the, which I, mean, I think is yeah that's also what the book was it's a movie it's a book it's it's content that's created for people who aren't curious about the truth and only want to have they want to be fed something that reinforces their biases and their priors and right. makes them feel good about America's place in the world. Right. Exactly. Everything you've been saying, everything that we've been saying <clears throat> just makes me think more and more that this is kind of a Western um, hmm. because <clears throat> there's no, as you, it doesn't even ever, there's no, there's never a subtitle. There's never, there's never um, a strap on the screen that tells you where they are. It never yeah. says Fallujah, Iraq, or Ramadi, Iraq, or Sadr City, Baghdad. All it says is Tour 1, Tour 2, Tour 3, Tour 4. Mm -hmm. um, so it doesn't, it, it's like it doesn't matter where he is because all this is is a story about a good guy facing down bad guys. Um, yeah. it's, a, it's a gunslinger who's facing down the guy who's you know, holding the civilians ransom and who the civilians are, doesn't even matter. And like Westerns, it doesn't really care about the technicalities of gunslinging. Like you were saying, you know, he's adjusting the dials on his sniper rifle, even though he's looking at a guy who's the same distance away as he was in the shop before it's it does. The technicalities and the realism don't matter because it's a gunslinger film. And of course it's a gunslinger film because it's Clint Eastwood. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean that, that leads me into the whole like, sheep wolves and sheep dogs thing. And I'm the more I think about it, the more I think this is why Clint Eastwood fucking loved this story because it's a story that Clint Eastwood knows. It's a story that Clint Eastwood acted when he was an actor. It's a story that Clint Eastwood has directed. It's a story about sheep wolves and sheep dogs. It's a story about, you know, protecting the flock. It doesn't work for all the reasons that we've been discussing, but that's what Clint Eastwood thinks it's about. And the Punisher imagery gets stronger and stronger the longer the movie goes on. First, it's Biggles. Yeah. Biggles is like reading that Punisher comic book mm -hmm. in the in the bunk. And then you see it on like Chris Kyle's body armor. And then you see it prominently displayed on the on the protective armor on the on the Humvee. And in real life, if you look at images of Chris Kyle's funeral, they hung up his body armor on the stage and he had the giant Punisher stencil sprayed on the body armor. So I'm curious what you think about that because obviously we all now know the Punisher imagery is everywhere and it has, you know, per Spencer Ackerman's thesis about bringing the war home, it's everywhere from military guys to January six rioters. But like in this movie, you see the Punisher everywhere and it's not explained or questioned but what this movie is saying is the Punisher like mythos is, is righteous and the Punisher is real and good. And he is my friend. Right. Like exactly. That's, that's Chris Kyle's entire like, yeah. So I, I'm, I'm coming around now to the fact that this is a Western, but I'm coming around to the fact that it's, it's not a good Western. The, the best Westerns I would argue are not the, cowboys versus indians ones they're not the black and white ones where the conflict is very clearly defined between like the white people are trying to do good 
and the faceless brown people are trying to murder and do savage things. The good Westerns are, I'm thinking of like, you know, modern ones, uh, 310 to Yuma, um, where it's it's a sort of more complex story of a man who's trying to do good and and various like bandits with different motivations all trying to, you know, stop him. And it's like, it's sort of a morality tale of like choosing principles over self-interest, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's like modern Westerns like Hell or High Water with um, Chris Pine and and I'm forgetting who, which is like the drama is coming from people who are in, who are to a certain extent, like on level terms and from the same, it's, it's, it's like white people fighting each other. It's cowboys shooting one another. It's not cowboys facing off against the, you know, the faceless like masses or whatever. Right. And American Sniper is, it's, it's, it's a Western in the most lazy, like lazy sense of Mm -hmm. Clint Eastwood, just putting himself into, into a fantasy where everything is black and white. Right. Right. And that's what makes, so I went back and looked at some of the reception of this movie when it came out and you see sort of probably liberal leaning American film reviewers wanting to try to appreciate this film. Uh, and so they bring up like the PTSD stuff, which we can talk about, but they're, I think they're kind of trying to tie themselves into, or they're tying themselves into knots trying to create a justification for why this film is good. And I think maybe that's just because we, we've never had a really good American post nine 11 war film, except you could argue for like the hurt locker, maybe zero dark 30. But what makes this film so disappointing is that we have examples of, of sort of morally gray Westerns, like the ones you mentioned, or even going way back, uh, the searchers from 1956, a classic John Ford movie, uh, the Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, 1962, also directed by John Ford, which is like the reason why John Ford Westerns are good is because they explore moral ambiguity, not because they want to present to us like a hero with no questions asked. I mean, The Searchers, you can argue about its depi- depiction of Native Americans. Ultimately, though, John Wayne's character is shown as an out and out racist. And the, the film asks the question whether that sort of virulent militant racism was what was necessary to conquer the West. And then the man who shot Liberty Valance, you have Jimmy Stewart shooting the enemy, shooting the bad guy, Mustafa in American Sniper. He shoots the equivalent of Mustafa. And that would be the end of the movie if it were directed by Clint Eastwood. But because it's John Ford, the movie actually shows you that John Wayne, spoiler alert, killed uh, the black hat. Um, and mm-hmm. Jimmy Stewart goes on to this successful career in politics based on his heroic act, which is based on uh, a falsehood. And so John Ford Westerns explore this ambiguity about the violence that was necessary to conquer the West. And, you know, heroes are not what we think they are. Heroes are born out of the myth-making process. Clint Eastwood is asking none of these questions with American Sniper. Yeah. None of them. He doesn't want you to question anything about uh, Chris Kyle. And I think, I think that's uh, you, we keep mentioning the hurt locker in, uh, in conversation with this and, you know, say what you will about the the politics of that movie as well. It's an infinitely more interesting movie to that because while they have a similar structure, you know, heroic maverick cowboy American hero does various war things over the course of a film to stop 
um, generally faceless baddies. In The Hurt Locker, Jeremy Renner is not presented as the hero of this movie. Jeremy Renner is is the movie's antagonist. And basically every action that he takes is bad for the people around him. And right. and that is that's like that's a, a a sort of introspection and like angle to the plot that American Sniper is on the verge of showing, but never does because it's not you know because it's not actually satire because they you know it believes that this is that this guy was doing right. I mean you know and and I'm sure we'll we'll do the Hurt Locker <laughs> sooner or later um, on this show, but basically yeah every action jeremy renner takes in that movie i'm just like skimming back over the plot again right now on wikipedia makes it worse for the guys that are in his squad and in some cases like grievously injures them and then his like guilt is at war with his like basically love for the adrenaline rush and his own like love for like feeling like he has the moral high ground Mm -hmm. when i think it's clear that even he knows that he doesn't and and that difference is like what makes American Sniper deeply stupid and the Hurt Locker like both entertaining and a somewhat compelling like piece of filmmaking. Right. And that makes that makes me think of the PTSD angle to this movie, which I want to talk about. But before we get to that, I want to also talk about the character of Mark Lee. Mm. Because you like Hurt Locker, you're mentioning Jeremy Renner's character ends up making things worse for his fellow soldiers in and they all hate him in the hurt locker right like his fellow the the big part of the hurt locker is his fellow soldiers being like should we just like kill this guy right should we shoot him in the back (laughs) right whereas in whereas in american sniper biggles continuously promotes uh chris kyle as the legend and even when biggles is lying in his hospital bed with a completely demolished face um, he's reassuring Chris Kyle that everything Chris Kyle has done is correct and, and right. Yeah. But one of the one of the areas where reality intrudes on this movie in a very interesting way that Clint Eastwood, I don't think, intended is Mark Lee. Mark Lee uh, was the first SEAL to die um, in Iraq, Operation Iraqi Freedom on August 2nd, 2006, when he was killed during a firefight in Ramadi. And the film dramatizes this event which is, if we were talking about it earlier, when Chris Kyle says, we're going back in. So they go mm-hmm. back in, and if you remember, they're in this house. Chris Kyle says to him, because he finds a, a razor on the sink, he's like, they've just been here. And then mm-hmm. Mark Lee rounds the corner uh, and gets shot through the window and dies. And then they show Mark Lee's funeral, and they actually excerpt Mark Lee's letter, uh, his final letter to his family. And in the car, I think I think it's that scene you were talking about where um, Taya goes into labor. But Chris Kyle tells Taya, you know, the reason why Mark Lee died is because he lost faith in the mission. Um, yeah, he he directly says it. It wasn't like it wasn't the the mission that killed him. It was that letter. He it says was letter. it was that letter that kills him. They directly reference the letter in the movie, which was that letter is the most interesting part of this movie because it's a guy who's actually wrestling with what he's done. Um, yeah. and whether it's worth it, um, which is something that Chris Kyle never does. Uh, and the movie chooses Chris Kyle's perspective, but in the letter, mm-hmm. Mark Lee talks about, you know, I've seen things that are wonderful. I've seen a man give his food to a hungry child and family. I've seen a hospital that coalition forces will provide security for and give medicine to. And then he says, 
I will be honest and say that some of the things I have seen here are unjustified and uncalled for. And then he says, I have seen hate towards a nation's people uh, who have never committed a wrong except being born of a third world, ill-educated and ignorant to Western civilization. It is not everybody who feels this way, but only a select few. So obviously, you know, he doesn't want to place blame on all the SEALs, but he's admitting that he's seen some terrible shit over there and, and his own people do some terrible things. And this is the last letter Mark Lee wrote home before he was killed. And the film, as you said, rejects it completely in, through the voice of Chris Kyle. But the choice to reject that is kind of all you need to know about this movie because it doesn't want you to to doubt anything that American soldiers are doing. And that makes me think about going back to that very first scene with that spotter who's mm-hmm. who Chris Kyle doesn't know if he should pull the trigger on this kid who's holding a grenade. And the spotter says, um, they fry you if you're wrong and they send your ass to Leavenworth. <laughs> Which is so funny because, but so, but so aggravating because the average person who's going to watch this film and that includes people who read the news a lot, you know, are probably going to think to themselves like, yeah, like, you know, an American soldier who, who fucks up and kills a civilian, they might go to jail. But what's the, actually true is that you almost, as a soldier, you almost never go to jail. The chances of yeah. you going to jail for, for a judgment call on the battlefield are infinitesimally small. I mean, yeah. I, I went through this before we did this episode to refresh my memory about the soldiers who've faced actual war crimes prosecutions um, for the war on terror. And there's basically three major cases. There's Abu Ghraib, which everyone knows. There's the incident in Mahmoudia, where a group of U.S. soldiers gang-raped an Iraqi teenager and then killed her and her family. And then Mm -hmm. there's soldiers in Afghanistan in the Maiwan district. They were a kill team and they killed Afghan civilians and militants. And then, and if you were, you probably remember this story, they took uh, body parts as trophies. And then you have some other scattered cases where guys, um, you know, killed people who they thought were maybe militants, but it turned out they were civilians or they executed prisoners. A couple of whom were actually pardoned by uh, president Trump. And you look at this list And you realize that to go to prison for murdering someone in a war zone, you essentially have to commit the worst of the worst possible thing you can imagine. So the idea that Chris And you have to do it in the most like well-documented and obvious way. Right. It has to be documented. Like Like if there's any doubt. They took pictures of themselves, their own squad mates, you know, testified against them. So if you're Chris Kyle and you shoot a kid carrying a grenade, the idea that he's going to go to Leavenworth is is farcical. This guy's never going to go to... He's not even going to yeah. face a court-martial for killing a kid. But the film wants you to think that these were sort of like deeply dangerous situations for Chris Kyle to be in, when in fact the deeply dangerous situation to be in is the Iraqi civilian. Yeah, yeah. And you see that... You see a direct example of this later in the movie where I think he's like... He's like... Uh, they're talking about like he's called in to like justify one of his kills or whatever. And you get like a, it's like a 10 second shot of his commanding officer that goes like, well, his wife says he was holding a Quran and Bradley Cooper goes, he goes, 
well, I don't know what a Quran looks like, but yeah. I can tell you what he was holding. And it was pressed metal, shoots <laughs> seven six two millimeter ammunition, and looks a whole lot like an AK-47. And it's like, okay, Chris Kyle, like, I don't know how dumb you are, but you know what a Quran looks like. It's a book. Like, it looks mm-hmm. like a fucking book. Like, mm-hmm. the Quran is a book. I think you know that the Quran is a book. But, yeah. you know, good line, sure. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> I, I think I think those are, that. that's actually favorite lines of the movie um definitely uh i do better when they're breathing mm-hmm. and uh i don't know what a quran looks like mm-hmm. uh i think are, are the two standouts for me for sure my favorite line i mean i loved i loved um <clears throat> i do better when they're breathing because again that was like an inadvertent like does clint eastwood want to make us think this guy is a psycho because he's doing a really right. good job um if this movie does anything well to me it's the relationship between Kyle, uh, Chris Kyle and Taya, his wife, who is presented as long suffering, uh, really wants him to come home. I mean, the movie starts with him meeting her in a bar and he basically negs her. You know, he comes up <laughs> like, you know, these these like oafish Navy SEALs are throwing darts at each other. And then Chris Kyle, deadly sniper and pickup artist. Yeah. But then the other half of this domestic sphere is Chris Kyle's PTSD, which I want to talk about. Because Chris Kyle's PTSD is the way that most reviewers for mainstream publications found a way to appreciate this movie and to justify it as like a worthy examination of the American war on terror. And there are scenes where Chris Kyle is facing his PTSD. There's one scene where he's sitting in a chair. He's staring at a blank television set. He's hearing explosions. He's zoned out. There's another scene where his dog is playing with his kid and he loses it and he's about to go up. He whips, whips his belt off and he's about to beat up his own dog for like licking his son's face. And yes, like, you know, these are actually opening the door to a very different kind of movie. You know, it's almost like a, the beginnings of a horror movie where you mm-hmm. think Chris Kyle's going to do something really bad. Like a lot of other veterans who come home with PTSD have done. They've killed themselves. They've killed other people they've like the veteran that killed Chris Kyle, like the veteran that killed Chris Kyle, which the mute, the movie totally ignores. So that's what I want to ask you about is what did you think about the treatment of PTSD in this film? This felt like one of the more sort of boring portrayals of PTSD. What was interesting to me about Chris Kyle's PTSD specifically is that it was never PTSD over things that he had done the things that like it didn't seem like the things that he had done that he had done traumatized him mm-hmm. there's one moment when he appears to be sort of reckoning with what he did after he kills the kid in the first scene of the movie mm-hmm. um and uh, uh Biggles or whatever is is reading the Punisher comic book and says like oh great job and like here you here you popped your cherry today or something like that. And Chris Kyle has to be like, yeah, I popped my cherry by like icing a kid, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and it seems like it's almost, he's almost going to reckon with that. But then all the PTSD scenes later in the movie are portrayed as like, he sees the dog that he thinks is attacking his son and he has to go sheepdog mode right. on his dog, which is a sheepdog. Fucking stupid. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, 
And and then um, there's the the one in the car thing where the guy's got the the uh, like lug nut drill or whatever, mm-hmm. and it harkens back to like the butcher like mm-hmm. drilling the kid or whatever. Another fake um, event never happened. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so it, it's it's always like his PTSD is activated by situations by real life situations where he thinks he needs to be a hero again. His PTSD manifests himself in doing heroic acts where they're not needed right? or imagining heroic acts where they're not needed, right? which it's a very base level. And I think, again, it's catering to the myth that people want. It's that what a lot of Americans want PTSD to be is like a scarred warfighter who's not like he's not scarred because of what he's done. He's scarred because of like what he wasn't able to do, the guys he couldn't save, yeah. which is a very real trauma for a lot of people. I'm absolutely sure that stuff does completely mess you up. But a lot of times like PTSD comes just from like things that you have witnessed and things that like, like how that has affected you and then how the choices that you have made, like, like come back to haunt you. And it didn't seem like there was any introspection in Chris Kyle's PTSD. Right. Because the way that he beats it eventually is like becoming a, you know, a firearms instructor and going to like teach, you know, the, um, the wounded vets Mm -hmm. how to shoot. You get slightly better looks at it in the movie in, in the very quick scene where he sees his brother on the, on the runway Mm -hmm. and his brother's like acting weird where his brother was like this fun in the few scenes at the beginning of the movie was like this fun kind of, you know, fun sidekick egging him on to have fun and cracking jokes and stuff. And you see his brother who's clearly like fucked up from Mm -hmm. whatever happened. Right. And, and that scene is portrayed as Chris Kyle sees that and he talks to his brother and he can't figure out like, you can see the wheels turning in his head and what he's, he's like, why is my brother acting right. like such a bitch right exactly, now? Exactly, exactly. Like, you can't figure that out. That's and one the of those... only other, the only yeah. other portrayal is the final scene where the, the actor who's played the guy that kills him, who's this, like, skinny, like, shivering, like, beta cuck out at the car who can't deal with his PTSD, and he's implied as the one that, like, that's why he eventually murders Chris, right? Yeah. But that's right. not, like... Right. But those are much more realistic portrayals of what PTSD does to a lot of people. I feel like than someone who just like decides like, Oh, the only way I can fight it off is by taking the boys to the range. I mean, that scene on the tarmac that you mentioned with the brother is so interesting because that's another moment where you're asking yourself, is Clint Eastwood trying to open up an entirely different film here? And then, and then Clint Eastwood shuts the door, but you always wonder, you know, the brother clearly affected um, it's also suggested by that scene that like Chris Kyle hasn't spoken to his brother in, in months. He meets his brother on the tarmac and he says, how are you doing? And his brother says, I hate it here. Um, <laughs> yeah. And my question, my immediate question was, when was the last time you talked to your brother? He didn't even know his brother deployed. Didn't even know his brother. Like, deployed, that was the whole thing, which yeah. is weird. So it's like Clint Eastwood suggesting that there's another movie here that would have been way more interesting to your point on the PTSD stuff as you and I have both like read about and probably experienced the vigilance thing is real. Um, even, even when you haven't served in combat, if you've been in a war zone and you've heard explosions, um, there is a period that could last from weeks to months to years where you come back and 
loud noises um, will trigger, you know, a, a flood of uh, adrenaline. Um, yeah. You know, you hear a car backfire uh, or if you hear something crash into something else, you know, you're that triggers you because you've heard things exploding that might be lethal. And so, yeah, you know, Chris, Chris Kyle being triggered by these things to me is very realistic. Chris Kyle seeing the guy, remember that scene where he sees the, the van in his rearview mirror. Um, and he's, you know, he, he's acts as if he's being tailed by this guy. Mm -hmm. Um, this is all to me, you know, realistic, but what you said is right, which is what's missing is, he's not being traumatized by things that he's done. He's traumatized by things that Iraqi insurgents have done to others and his inability to go back and protect his guys, which he says over and over and yeah. over again. Um, he has PTSD because he didn't get to kill more guys. Right. Not because he killed guys. Right. And I'm not going to say that like, that's not really what Chris Kyle felt, but if it is what Chris Kyle felt, then it's indicative of the fact that this guy, in a way he's the perfect American warrior because part of his brain, the part of his brain that would be affected by killing 155 to 260 Iraqis doesn't experience PTSD. Another thing that the real Chris Kyle did, which the movie only includes as kind of a, you know, boys will be boys thing in the beginning is drink heavily. This is something that the real Chris Kyle did to deal with his PTSD. And he admits in his autobiography to, you know, I would have, you know, some beers every night and then it progressed to hard liquor and then it progressed to hard liquor throughout the day. Um, and the movie actually reverses that trajectory, which is Chris Kyle is a hard drinking, uh, Navy seal. And then once he goes into combat, there's no evidence that like Chris Kyle drinks anymore. Um, right. And, and in reality, this is a guy who drank heavily to, to cope with his PTSD. So in a movie that wants to be realistic, um, even according to the sort of embellished autobiography, Chris Kyle comes home and is basically an alcoholic. Um, but this movie doesn't want you to face that. It kind of it kind of hints at that in the in the final scene when he comes back from deployment, doesn't tell his wife that he's home and ends he's up at in a the bar. bar. Right, he's at a but bar. But it doesn't really investigate where it goes from that or why he did that. Right. No, he's sitting anyway. at a bar watching a sports game, and it's not like it, it's not like he's drinking to excess. Um, no, he's a guy who like needs some time on his own because he's a, you know, he's a wounded warrior. And then, you know, the final scene, which you've already mentioned, um, is basically Chris Kyle is healed completely. Like he's the, the psychologist invites him to treat, uh, vets. Uh, he goes shooting with them. He finds meaning in that. And his home life is repaired um, despite the fact that the thing that he's shown doing that makes him seem like a nice father is walking around with a very realistic looking gun pointing it at members of his family. Um, yeah. but, but he's portrayed as like, you know, he, Chris Kyle's a nice guy now. And unfortunately he gets killed by, uh, you know, a, a psychotic soldier, um, which is a trajectory that just doesn't ring true. And it just doesn't, it's, it's also just, it's such a weird way to end the movie. Which I guess part of that was like sort of production, and that it, I I'm I, I think, and I I have to get this right, but the movie came out like not very long after Kyle died, and you know, and 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 it's 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 interesting that a lot of that is by by design, um, and you you get the sense that in real life, Chris Kyle's actual family 
bought into this and they still bought into this narrative that that just wasn't true and isn't true and this ideology that just doesn't doesn't make sense um i had in my notes when i was reading about this apparently chris Kyle's father called up bradley cooper and clint eastwood and was like i'm gonna unleash hell on you that's a quote like he threatened to unleash hell if they like were disrespectful towards his son and like <laughs> fucked it up and ended up after meeting them said that like Clint Eastwood and Bradley Cooper were people he could trust, you know? Right. And, and that implies, I haven't looked too much up, up about like the, their, the family's response to the movie, but like that they, that they're, that the, the Chris Kyle that the movie portrays is who they saw him as as well. Right. Which, and you know, neither of us knew this person personally. So who are we to say, but I think it's very clear that like the, events that happen that are documented that are on paper is not like that's not what the story was right it's a hagiography of chris kyle based on chris kyle's own autobiography and when you look at uh the reporting on how bradley cooper and sienna miller went about learning their characters you realize that no one involved in the making of this film or at least it doesn't seem the director or the leading actors wanted to do a film that questioned whether or not Chris Kyle was a good guy or whether mm-hmm. the mission he was sent to Iraq to complete was a justifiable mission. You've got <clears throat> Sienna Miller who like does these long conversations with Taya to convince her that she can play her, you know, they talk about babies and children, they get to know each other and that leads Taya to trust Sienna Miller. Now that to me is I, I think she actually does a good job at portraying this woman and that that's the best part of the movie is 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 that relationship. But then you have Bradley mm-hmm. Cooper who talks about like <clears throat> he wears Chris Kyle's shoes. Um, he chugs protein shakes and deadlifts 425 pounds. Right. He pumps uh, himself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He pumps himself up like liter- like he, he lifts weights like Chris Kyle does. People look at him. They like do like double takes because they think he looks like Chris Kyle. So that to me answers the question of what is this movie trying to do? The movie thinks that Chris Kyle is basically a hero. He's kind of a flawed hero because he suffers from a PTSD after he gets home, but he's basically a hero who dies tragically. And the movie doesn't even want to talk about, you know, sort of the meaninglessness or, or what meaning there might be in Chris Kyle's death you know, talking about PTSD, the movie doesn't really want to talk about that, which might be related to production, as you said. But this is a movie that wants, that basically treats Chris Kyle's autobiography at face value, in fact, ups the drama in a fictitious way to make it even more heroic and doesn't want to ask any any hard questions. Yeah. I think it's, it, it the the movie took a character and a person and a real life series of events that, could be one of the most instructive and interesting and sort of introspective case studies in examining America's sort of like post 9-11 warrior culture and turned it into the worst possible takeaway and interpretation from that from something that just reinforced all of the negatives of those aspects of American, American life that, that reinforced all of the stereotypes and mindsets that 
you know, Chris Kyle is is a tragic figure and it's a tragedy what happened to him and right. whether or not he was a, a good or honest person in real life. I don't doubt that he felt a genuine dedication to the men that he was serving with. And I don't doubt that he committed acts of genuine heroism and saved their lives. But the 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 like the arc of his story and his place in history is a tragic one. And this movie made it into a kind of heroic tale with a sad, tragic ending, one that's not presented as part of Chris Kyle's arc. Like the the PTSD and the events and conditions that led to his killing by a fellow soldier, a fellow Marine, who had also been destroyed by the same conflict. You know, Chris ultimately lost his life to the Iraq war. You know, it's, mm-hmm. and it, it's the, the aspects of that war that followed him home. Um, and it's, it, that's presented as like an anomaly, almost this like mm-hmm. out of the box tragedy that was committed by someone who was like weak and who couldn't, you know, who wasn't an American hero. When I think that both Chris Kyle and the person who killed him are, are, are victims of the same forces and and are both kind of tragic figures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a movie that like almost by total accident does you does a really good job of showing you how the myth of uh, sort of American military worship is constructed. Um, yeah. And it's on a purpose. Um, yeah. Also executive produced by none other than Steve Mnuchin.